wanted to go back to the thing we had talked about the other night with translation as subversion, as subversion and offering alternate versions and the role that translation can play in the world we're living in right now um, and your thoughts on that. Wow, that's general. Oh, if you have a way go to ahead. specify it, go ahead. Um, I think this might specify. Mm-hmm. It's on the same terms of what I've been thinking about because like, each of us in our little cohort have independently come to this path of concluding that binaries are problematic Mm -hmm. and they're pervasive in translation discourse Mm -hmm. and even though we're thinking about it in different ways we're we've all been thinking about binaries and challenging them breaking them down and Mm -hmm. questioning them and i think this is related to the question of subversion okay how does thinking through and beyond binaries work towards subversion or how do they play? Okay, they are separate. So I think the subversive yeah. question has two levels, and I think the binary question, I mean, the first class, it's it's sort of been my leitmotif for many years. I, I, I'm really disturbed by that discourse in translation. It's the foreignizing, domesticating, it's yes. the beauty versus truth, it's yeah. the loyalty versus this. I think that's not, and so what what I have done, and you know, um, what I kind of, where I got to at a certain point was to start with my practice. So um, start with, it's sort of a more Buddhist approach, let's say, because the Buddhist approach always talks about the middle way, right? Mm-hmm. So I've sort of come to it from that. So come to it from thinking of it in terms of those kinds of teachings. So the middle way does away with those what, what are you calling them? Bilater- bi- binaries? Binaries. I call dualities, mm-hmm. right? I guess. I'm yes. not sure exactly mm-hmm. what the difference is. I don't think there is um, but but it's, it's all, I mean, that, that whole way of thinking, body, mind, yes. so it's, it's, it's crap. Feminine. It's crap. So I know that's very eloquent. So. No, it's, that's exactly how it, it's, it just, it's I feel. So exactly. And you know, it's crap because, and I'll, I'll say it, not for ideological reasons, not for political reasons. It's crap because I think we miss so much. Yes. And I also think we we end up seeing it, it leads to a kind of fascist thinking. It leads to black and white. It leads to not exploring the gray and the in-between. So, yeah, I, 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 my practice, I don't feel like I'm being pulled between literal and what... Domestic, domestic, or foreignizing, or the whole intervening or not intervening, or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, being true. What is it? True to the letter or true to the spirit? I never feel like that. I feel like when I'm translating well, I am doing something else, and I'm getting at both states places. Mm-hmm. In terms of subversion, I think there are two levels. One is what we translate, and the other is how we translate. Now, these are these are connected. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that the act of translating inoculates us against fascist fundamentalist thinking. I mean, what is fundamentalism? Fundamentalism is basically saying there is one interpretation to this text. Yeah. Whether it's constitutional fundamentalism or religious fundamentalism, it's saying there is one interpretation and this is the correct interpretation. If you translate, you know that's not true. So I I think translators need to own that. And if we continue to talk about literal translations, air quotes, we are, we are betraying that, what, that importance of knowing that there is no such thing. 
Because if we continue to talk about literal translations, then, then we're saying, in a sense, we're subscribing to that ideology that there is a literal translation. And then that leads into bi- bi- dual- dualistic mm-hmm. thinking and the mm-hmm. idea that there is a correct translation and then there are creative translations. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And confining meaning, too. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about translation is that translation, I mean, one way to think of it, it's sort of the last of the humanistic pursuits. It's, you know, George Steiner talked about it being sitting at sort of the core of what it means to be human. I mean, if it's also this ridiculously utopian activity to think that we can actually communicate across languages, that we can communicate at all, let alone that we mm-hmm. can communicate across languages, that there is something as universal experience that goes beyond languages, that we can bring the experience back, like talked about the interpretive triangle, that we can bring that experience back and then have it emerge again in a different language. It's really, it's utopian. For someone who hasn't heard you were talking about the interpretive triangle, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's, it's one way, there are many different ways of, of conceptualizing what we do as translators. So one way is to think about a, uh, a what, what do they call it? equilateral triangle, right? Mm-hmm. So th- the idea would be that instead of going straight across the bottom from one language to another, what actually happens is that the text or the speech act goes through the translator who is at the top and farther away from both languages. And that's what the translator needs to do. It needs to remain somehow farther away from both languages. Reimagine, reprocess the message, um, the music, whatever is being translated, and then come back down to another language. Mm. So the translator sort of stands at this pinnacle far away from both languages and is so it's not a bridge you know other people talk about a bridge I don't particularly like that metaphor um, I, I like the interpretive triangle because I think it it, it it creates enough distance and it puts the translator there not on that same line but definitely there in the picture mm. for me like the experience of translating is very visceral it's like it uses my whole body yep. and it feels like this triangle, which I've never heard of, sounds yeah. apt to what that experience is. And uh, feeling like I'm sort of incorporating or even digesting a piece mm-hmm. of text or even a line within mm-hmm. a text and then somehow processing That's it right. out again. That's right. And in a recent workshop, this came up, and I think Laurel talked about that it had come up in a, another workshop with you guys, the translator's voice. and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the place of the translator's voice on the page, the problem of it. I hate that we're mm-hmm. problematizing and all this, but uh, thinking about like, does the translator's voice have a place, and how can it not? Or, well, I think the term voice is very equivocal, and one of the things that we as translators do is we examine the meaning of every word and every concept, and that's part of what's so fun about it. So um, and that's why I also say I think. I think of translators as sort of roving intellectuals. Like, we, we kind of, we're totally non-specified. I mean, what we do is investigate, really look deeply into what things mean. So voice is a really interesting concept and can be so, you can have a room of five people talking about voice and talking about five different things. Mm-hmm. That's one of the problems in this issue of how it's discussed in terms of the translator. For some people, they take that to mean 
like what I would consider inappropriate and unethical creative license in terms of putting one's one's ego, one's self into the translation. Mm. For other people, it's recognizing that we our language is personal. That yeah. that the language I choose, whether it's syntax or or vocabulary, is necessarily passing through me. And to deny that is is just foolish. It's silly. It's just I, it's silly. I mean, it's clearly my language. Um, so I think you can go both ways. I think you can get to a place. I've seen it where people say, "Well, it's my voice." Well, what do we mean by voice? What do you mean by voice? Mm. It's the voice. What you know? Some people talk about voice as like the voice of a writer would be the voice we hear inside my own head. Like we all have voices in our heads. Yeah. We know their voices if we're not psychotic, but we have voices. We talk to ourselves. Is that our voice? Mm. What does it mean? What's a voice? What does it mean? A voice of a text? I don't know. It's 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 unclear. So I think we have to define our terms before we say that's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had talked a little bit of where theory falls short uh-huh. um, in the field of translation, and I feel like part of the reason theory falls short is because it it gets so caught up in the bigger pictures without first looking at these smaller details, like defining what it is you were talking right, about. Right. Um, so do you think, well, I guess I have two questions related. Um, does theory have a place in translation when you are a translator? Mm-hmm. And if so, what kind of role should it have? And then if so, um, how can we go forward? Like, should we first as a field think about these um, the terminology that we're all using, but maybe all using differently. Right. Well, I think I think the question is. So the question is, what role does theory have in practice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, what role does theory have in teaching translators? And in general, what's the value of theory? Yeah. Those are kind of three different yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. So, value of theory, like any other academic pursuit. It's valid in and of itself. I don't know. Um, Like any academic pursuit, it can have value. The value of teaching theory to students, I think you'd have to look in the bigger context of what else you're teaching students and Mm. the role you're saying that theory has. I think theory is fine to the extent to which it can inform the practice. Mm -hmm. But if it takes over and you start... It needs to interact with practice, and I mm-hmm. think that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I also think it needs to not obviate methodology. So, if we take an analogy of music theory or practice, so a, a violinist is going to learn how to play a violin. Mm-hmm. Theory, music theory, is probably really important at some stage in their training, but so is practice, mm-hmm. and that practice. To what extent is does the theory inform the practice? To what extent does the practice inform the theory? And I think often what happens with theory and with academic pursuits of that kind, they want the theory to inform the practice, but they don't want it the other way around. Mm, that's so and I think it's important to see that, how those two interact. So if you take acting or, or, or music, which I think are the two, to me, the best analogies. Mm -hmm. And because they are performers with a stage, 
I think we understand it a little better. So with acting, do you want to, if you want to be an actor, do you want to study drama theory? Possibly. But you also want to take classes with great actors. Mm-hmm. And I think the same with music. Well, and that's interesting because if you think about any, any professional musician, nobody starts from theory. Everybody starts with maybe 10 years of playing. That's and then right. if you go into conservatory, then you learn the that's theory. Right. That's right. So that's a very interesting way to take it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's important, I think, not enough emphasis has been put on methodology, for mm-hmm. instance, which, you know, you talk about acting, method acting. How do you get into a role? Are you um, defining a difference between methodology and theory, like yes. methodology being sort of like comparative stylistics? Like no, methodology would be actually how do I go about translating? What method do I use? What dictionaries do I use? Right, how many right, versions, right. how many drafts do I do? What am I doing in each draft? Mm-hmm. Now, in describing that, I might, re- I might, I, I, again, theory, it's like, yeah, to talk about that, I could refer to theoretical concepts. But I think when we're talking about method, when we're pr- practical translators talk about their methodology, they're talking about actually what they're doing. Same as with acting. If a professional actor, one thing is dr- drama theory, which they might get a PhD at a university, but another thing would be to talk to an actor to Robert De Niro and say, how do you get into a role? Mm-hmm. How do you prepare for a role? Mm-hmm. What do you do? What research do you do to prepare for a role? How do you get into character? Do you walk around all day in that character? Some actors walk around all day in character. Some don't. So different actors have different methodologies for being in their role. Mm-hmm. So on that line, would you talk a little about your own methodology? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Ooh, segue. And that's a great word, segue. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, my, I, you know, I, I always read the piece before I translate it. Uh, the, the, few time, the few times I haven't, I've regretted it because <laughs> it's ended up not Surprise. being very surprised. Exactly. Um, some translators don't do this. Interesting. I, yeah, um, I o- pretty much always read it. Um, pretty much always. Not always, but pretty much always. Um, I do a rough first draft in which I am more or less successful teasing out all the meaning and nuance and feeling a style, getting it maybe not all throughout, but getting bits and pieces of the style and the voice, whatever all those things are, those ineffable things, the music, Mm -hmm. um, the tone, the register, all those different aspects that come into play. Um, And then I do a lot of drafts, depending on the difficulty of the original text, the poetic qualities, the literary quality, the literary characteristics. I will be referring back to the original through two or three drafts or only one draft. Um, At some point, I leave the original in another room, hopefully, physically, in another room, and I work on the English, and I bring it into English fully. Mm. So it's like, you have to rip it out of the original and then bring it into English. Work on the English over and over and over, refine it, chip away, pare it down, And then when I think I've got it in English, often I like, if I have time, I often don't because of contracts, I will let it sit. I like to let translation sit. And I find it's kind of remarkable, you know, for as long as possible. It's like a good wine, you know, just let it sit, age. Come back to it, you know, refine it some more. And then at the very end, before I turn it in, I will um, compare it back to the original and make sure that I haven't gotten too far away. Um, And then I turn it to the editor, 
and then it goes through an edit. Sometimes the edit and the copy edit are the same. And at that point, I also do a lot of fiddling. So the editor is the first, if, if you have a good editor, a first really intelligent reader, um, often they will point out things that were weird and makes me go back and look at the original, refine, refine, refine. Mm-hmm. Um, I will take their suggestions or not or find a third solution, not the original one I had, not what they suggest, but something else. Um, and that, that's when you have a good editor, when that provokes that, when that prompts you to do that. And then that's it. I wondered in these terms, have you ever worked on a maybe particularly prose and felt that um, there was like an intangible or half visible blueprint in English for what's being expressed here and that like the way to express this thing in your original language already exists in the English and you're trying to Hmm. grasp for that? I mean, maybe the the most simplistic way of answering that is sort of like with genre fiction. Like when I I did several sort of noir thrillers. So um, in that case, I read a bunch of noir fiction. So Chandler and Hammett and a lot of other, um, David Godine, not Godine, I forget his name. Um, but some really great, you know, American noir thrillers. So that helped me sort of feel it. Um, I will often, um, get a sense. Yes. I get a sense of what English speaking writers, that writer has been influenced by. Mm -hmm. So I translated a Spanish author, Marcos Girotti, and I could tell, and I often am right, like I'll, I'll read it and then I'll communicate with the author and I'll say, so can you tell me what authors in English you've read, you know, or read in translation, but have influenced you and often it will be similar. So this guy was sort of Henry James, more Faulkner, he was sort of long, sinuous sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, with Horacio Castellanos Moya, I remember reading him and thinking, oh, he's read Bernhardt, you know, so, so but again, that was translated, Thomas Bernhardt, into English and into Spanish. So who influences these authors? Because that's, you know, literature is a conversation across the centuries and mm-hmm. across space and time. So sort of where, where in that conversation is this work? Yeah. Is that sort of what you're... Exactly. Um, this is going to go back a little bit. Uh, but is thinking about the translator as someone who is already inherently thinking about alternatives and alternative ways of thinking and being Mm -hmm. but at the same time the translation community is small (laughs) and very insular Mm -hmm. so and I I think that part of our role as translators is to offer alternatives to other human beings in whatever capacity we are capable of and I would argue that that's hopefully the goal of many professions (laughs) But what can we as translators do to work outside of our tiny little tight-knit community? Just for clarification, what do you mean by alternatives? Like, to what specifically? I mean, uh, uh, for instance, just alternative ways of seeing the, the world, which is to say the cultures that our texts are coming from are hmm. looking at the world in maybe a different way than we do. Well, I would, I would argue that, I mean, I think, I think one, it's sort of... The act of being a translator is you are you are going out into a different world, mm-hmm. right? That's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know how insular the translation community is. I mm-hmm. think it can feel that way in the United States if you're in Iowa or involved with Alta, mm-hmm. and you, you can become very insular. Um, I think you ha- one, and and also I think the media these days, social media, can make you feel that way if you're mm-hmm. in this little tight knit group. I I think it's important not to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think as translators, we have a unique opportunity not to make that happen because we can go into other worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, one One of the ways I've done that in the last 10 years is by being involved in this program in Canada where... It's an international translator, so I'm not just around American translators or mm-hmm. U.S. translators. I'm around Canadian translators and German translators and Japanese translators and Korean translators and people from those countries mm-hmm. translating into those languages, Eastern European. Mm-hmm. And so that really broadens it out, and you see how translation is viewed in all these different countries, the role of the translator, the the um, material conditions of the translators in these countries, um, how they're seen more or less as professionals, um, is that sort of answer your question? I get the feeling it's not exactly what you were asking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, um. I, I think I think being in an academic setting can make you feel more insular than it yeah. is. And it's, I, it's kind of a paradox that translators can be insular. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I mean, again, I feel like the academic world tends to be that way. And mm-hmm. since I, I would recommend you know, being out of that world. And because, and, but then you could also be in the literary world, mm-hmm. which is agents and editors, and that can get weird too. So I think the best bet is to be as independent as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and that way you can sort of feel around and be in and out of those mm-hmm. worlds. It's interesting that um, those worlds maybe predominantly exist on the internet, virtual worlds, and that navigating into new spaces is for us maybe defined as navigating through new virtual spaces is that do you I'm thinking I think about it you can and Twitter. be yeah um well and I do think the internet adds an interesting dimension to what we do yes um <laughs> if I were a Japanese translator in the 20s I think I would cry a lot <laughs> Uh, because you wouldn't because, have access to yeah, the, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's how I get virtually a lot of things that I don't know is to search the Japanese internet and that's be like, right. who has said this before? That's and right. how are they using that's it? Right. Um, what picture do I get when I search that's this right. thing I've never heard of? Um, Other internets. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the first, you know, first stage of my career, there was no internet. Yeah. So, um, and I have had the occasion of looking at the second book I ever translated, um, because I had Ooh. two people. I had two people at Banff who were translating it in the same book into Arabic. Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I got a chance to look at my translation. I made some mistakes I probably wouldn't make today, mm-hmm. and I'm probably going to retranslate it because. Oh. Yeah. That's actually a question I had. Um, if I can try and articulate this, <laughs> uh, so I wondered if you had looked onto some of your past translations and ever felt the urge to rework them, perhaps responding to changes in your personal aesthetic or um, changes in zeitgeist? I mean, new modes of expression. I, I want to change it immediately and because I will see something wrong. So it's, it, I hate opening a book once it's published. It's horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely like the most 
awful experience because I, I will immediately, no matter what page I open, I'll say, ooh, that word should be different, and I want to keep fiddling, and you can't fiddle once it's printed. But would any could I theorize about any... Yeah, because it makes me think, like, maybe translation is not static. It's, like, inherently not static. And so existing in the book, I mean, that's, if we get all Benjaminian here, the afterlife and all this, retranslating being. Right, I mean, but there, there's controversy about that. I mean, actually, Tim Parsis wrote another mm-hmm. article in the New York Review of Books about... When not to translate. When not to retranslate. retranslate. And so, because he, he kind of tends to go against the grain, and I, I appreciate that about him. I don't always agree with him, but I like that he brings... That there are these memes. Memes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Memes? Memes. Memes. memes? Memes. And people kind of repeat them thoughtlessly, and he kind of says, well, he does a little pullback. He's like, well, maybe... And I know I experienced that, for instance... Um, with the whole con- well, Russian literature mm-hmm. translations. You know, there was this sort of period where everybody was trashing Constance Garnett. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to start a fan club, the Constance mm-hmm. Garnett fan club, because the fact is, translations happen. I mean, that's, we haven't even spoken the most common word used in, tra- in anything to do with translation, with this context. Context is everything. Mm-hmm. So translations occur in particular contexts, historical and literary, mm-hmm. and um, literary, historic, whatever. So when Constance Garnett translated Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, there was no Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in English. Plus, they were not consecrated writers. They were mm-hmm. contemporary writers who nobody knew how great they were. Mm-hmm. Only time could tell. So she did this amazing thing, which was to bring them into English. What people do later are, is arguably better or worse, but it doesn't invalidate her work, and I think that's really important to see. She couldn't have done what later translators have done. Um, I can't do with the contemporary authors I translate what somebody might be able to do in 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's not the scholarship or because there's not the... That author, when you bring... When she brought Dostoevsky into English, she transformed the English literary scene. She created a place for Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky in English. Mm. To go back and retranslate Dostoevsky, he already exists in English. His work already exists in English. So English is different. That's the subversion aspect mm-hmm. where you're inserting something strange into a complacent whole. And by doing so, you transform that. Pit. Hmm? A pit. A pit. <laughs> oh, this so came up last night. Right. Oh. Um. Who am I reading? Mm-hmm. I just finished reading John McGahern, the Irish writer, Amongst Women, and his memoir. I love his work. Um, who else am I reading? I'm reading um, Mauro Javier Cárdenas. I think that's his name. He wrote The Revolutionaries Try Again. Um, he's a Bolivian writer who's writing, an Ecuadorian writer who's writing actually in English. He's been living in the States for many, many years. Interesting piece. Um, what else am I reading? Have I read in the last few months? Go ahead. I like thinking about cross-pollination and wondering if the ways you're thinking about translation or the way you're walking around and having translation inhabit your mind, Mm -hmm. if that affects anything outside of your translation, if it... I can't tell you because that's just who I am. Right. I think it's so much a part of who I am that I think 
I think that's why it's a practice. It's not something, it's not a job. It's, I think I found translation and I have continued to do it because that's how I think anyway. So it's very hard for me to separate. I think I always think in terms of translating. I think I think in terms of facilitating communication. How do you think? It's weird. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's but a I, question to ask but someone. But <laughs> I'm always questioning the words people use. It kind of drives me crazy a lot. I mean, mm. I can get really crazy. And actually, it's one of the reasons why... Um, I love silence and I love I love being in countries where I don't speak the language. I was just in Lithuania for five weeks and I didn't understand anything. I don't understand Russian or Lithuanian, which is mostly what's spoken. I just, I feel so much peace because I can focus on other things. I don't have to, I can't work in cafes because I overhear conversations and language just jars me. So another quick lightning question then, where and when do you work? I work at home mostly. I always think I should go to cafes because other people do, but I never, unless I'm in Lithuania, and then I go to cafes and work. I work when I travel. I, um, if I travel, I usually work four or five hours in the morning and then do whatever I want to do wherever I am. Um, I, I have an office at home, mm. and when I'm revising, I'm often on the couch. If I'm doing first draft, I'm at the desk because I have to have the book. Revising, I'll often lie on the couch or in bed. Um, and then I guess just a last question, if you have, I mean, this is the horrible question everybody always asks. <laughs> Advice for emerging translators. <laughs> um, Young, desperate people read, such as ourselves. Read, read, read. Well, in terms of career, like professional, like how to get uh, published no, no. Well, or I skill? Think, I think read is probably the more one I hear the, most, the most often is read a lot, read widely read outside of your comfort zone and read deeply and read deeply and read read yeah uh read um write that's what we're doing we're reading and writing at the same Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. we're kind of strangely subliminally bipolar because you you're reading and writing at the same time it's like interpreters you're listening and talking at the same time it's a weird kind of processing unit I think we there are a translator. Or you're, or, I mean, there is a way in which kind of it's a vocation. Mm-hmm. It really is. Specific way of living and thinking. Maybe. I think so. I think so. Yeah. It's a, and it's a very critical mindset. You have to be take nothing for granted. Take nothing at face value. Always being questioning. What I mean, I think that's what we've seen in the class. Like, is that really what this means? Mm-hmm. What is the connection? What is the preposition? that goes between these two words. What is that relationship? And so obviously you're doing that when you listen to anything. It's, it's the critical m- mindset. Mm-hmm. When you listen to a politician, what are they really saying? When you listen to the news, what are they really, what's really going on here? And that's why I, I think the world would be a better place if everybody translated at least one paragraph. And I, well, yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about what we lack in the U.S. is we don't have rhetoric classes in pro- public schools. They in, used to. There's uh, a Ph.D. in Berkeley. UC, I knew somebody who got a Ph.D. in rhetoric at UC Berkeley. But, I mean, we have the AP English test now, the one yeah. that does the analyze the writing and talk right. about what it's doing, but that's a yeah. very small subset of students who are graduating who can identify what kinds of arguments are being used or whether they're false arguments. But also, you know, the focus is hyper-industrial and Mm. the the weight is in the STEM world, kind of abandoning humanities, which is a whole thing, a whole other thing. thing. Mm. 
abandoning humanity, mm-hmm. not just humanity. Yes. Oh, the cycle. Did you have any other questions? Oh, I think that should wrap it up in terms of lightning. Blah, 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 blah. Thanks so much for being with meeting with us. You're so good at talking. Thank mm-hmm. you.